and welcome back to another episode of International Immersion, a podcast that seeks to capture the combined experiences of people, places, culture, traveling, current events, living abroad, and everything that comes along with them. <clears throat> For today's episode, we have a very unique opportunity to speak with someone who's had a very interesting life full of interesting events, and who can bring a lot of, of thoughts, perspectives, and life experience to bear. Uh, I, I have no doubt of that. So for today, we're going to be talking with Ms. Sarah M. And Sarah is an inspirational speaker and an amazingly a survivor of the mass genocide in Cambodia. She's also an author of an award-winning book, How I Survived the Killing Fields. She also graduated from Western Connecticut State University. She operates her own wellness business, Smart Healthy Living. And then Sarah also is a motivational speaker and speaks to inspire and instill hope and confidence in her audience at conferences, seminars, churches, schools, TV, radios, podcasts, and more. And she's also a member of the Women's Speakers Association and Toastmaster International. So Sarah, it's great to have you on today. I've heard quite a bit about you and it's great to have you back from our previous podcast where we discussed uh, various cultures. So I hope you're, you're doing well. Thank you, Sean. Yes, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Oh, you're quite welcome, man. <clears throat> And I must say, just, you know, look, you know, learning more about you, I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, the life you've had up to this point and especially what you've been through and just the amount of things you, you know, you can bring, you can bring to the table in terms of what you do. And I can tell you're very outgoing, you know, you're always doing something and that's, that's really great to hear. Thank you. So basically, you know, today we want to discuss a little bit about your life, background and everything up until, you know, your current, current situation now. So I think it'd be a great uh, window for audience to kind of have an idea of what it's uh, been like for you to, you know, being born and raised in Cambodia to now living and residing in the United States and all of the events and things that have transpired in between. So to begin with, maybe you can give us a bit of a background about your early life uh, in Cambodia. I am a firstborn child, <laughs> born into my, my parents. They, they are farmers. So my, my childhood is living in the countryside, in the farm area, but we enjoy our lifestyle. It's very peaceful and calm and love and um, just surrounded by nature. So uh, what, and your family, what part of Cambodia uh, was, your, was your family from? It's, uh, let's see, <laughs> Northwest. It's uh, in the province called uh, Badambong. Okay, so more northwest Cambodia, so not yeah. too close to Phnom Penh, the capital. Yeah, not, not that close. Okay, so, you know, so growing up, as you mentioned, like, you know, what, are, what uh, would you say really defined your, your early life? What defined my early life is that um, my, my family expressed their love to me, so I, I, I only feel love. So that's just uh, such a blessing that I never question that I'm, I'm not loved. So it's just something that it's always stay in my mind, in my heart, that I have such a loving parent, loving family. No, that's, that, that's great. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, don't have that or they don't have that to the level that they should so that you know that's very that's very poignant and you know that's 
I'm glad you had that memory and I'm sure that's very powerful for you. So, you know, growing up, growing up, you, you know, you went to school. Can you talk about like, you know, going, going to school, what life was like for you? Yes. Uh, school in my, in my hometown, we have only up to uh, seventh grade. And after that, I have to move to another city. Uh, so up to seventh grade, I live at home. But, and then later on, I had to move to the city. I live with my aunt, but it's, um, it's just another, another step in my life that I need to move out of my hometown and uh, experience a different lifestyle. I live with my aunt. She has three, three or four children. So I help her with her children, with her housework and everything. So life is a little bit different. Oh, I'm sure. And how old were you when you moved from the your family in the country to the city? I was about 13, about 12 or 13 years old. Okay, so you you just, you know, right about, you know, right when you became a teenager about. Yeah. Okay. And was that and was that Phnom Penh or another another large city? It's a, it's a still in Badambong, but it's just another city. I see. Okay. What would you for you? What was the difference like between city life and you know rural life from your earlier childhood? I'm, I know there's a difference, but was there like anything unique you know, in Cambodia that, at that time that was different for you from your own experience? Yeah, totally different. Living in the countryside, everything we need for our kitchen, for our cooking, and everything is available around our house. If we need a vegetable, we just go pick some. If we need fruit, we just pick from the tree. And when I live with my aunt, city life is not like that. You have to go to the market every day. Over there, it's every day. Every day, you have to carry the bucket and go. Uh, you go shopping because there's no refrigerator at that time. That was a long time ago. <laughs> No, it's. I think it, it's always interesting to hear about you know lifestyles at different you know different periods of time in different countries. So, yeah, you know, it's like yeah. It, so basically, when you were at home, you were very much self sufficient. Then moving to the city, it was more okay. Every day you had to go to the store, you had to do everything because, like you said, no refrigeration or other things to you know keep you know you know think you know non perishables things like that. Yeah. You had non perishables, but the perishables would would. would course you know go bad after a period of time so you moved to the city when you were 13 and um you went to school and i take it you continued your schooling in the city as well yeah yeah uh, i go to the middle school and then eventually high school okay and kind of like what was cambodia like at that time when you were you know late childhood you know early teenage years how would you say, what, what was going on in Cambodia at that time? It was peaceful. There's a, a French word, laissez-faire. It's just like... Ah, <laughs> carefree, like just let it go. Like, yeah, uh, let it go. Nothing to worry about. But, uh, but I had some challenge at school at that time because I'm not used to do so much at home. Like right now, I'm living with my aunt. I had to take care of those little kids 
and help with the kitchen, cooking and shopping and everything. So my grade went down slightly. So that's the, the, <laughs> that's the difference. So in other words, you could say you were stretched a bit thin. You know, you had school, you had help to help your aunt with her kids and household, household chores and other things. So, of course, that's going to affect your, your school. I think anyone will be affected by too much additional work outside of school. So, and how long, so how long did you stay with your, with your aunt in, um, in the city? It's only like um, the first couple years. And then later on, uh, soon after that, my mom became sick. My mom had an accident. So she became paralyzed from her neck down. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. So she, she moved to, um, to the city and I moved in with her and I had to be a caregiver for my mom. So at that time, my mom had another child. So she had a baby. So I had to take care of mom and the little baby brothers. So life was very challenging. Oh, but, wow. So first you move, you move to see, you move with your aunt, help her out. And then your mother has this unfortunate accident. And then you have, and then you move in with her when she moves to the city and take care of her as well. How old were you when you moved in with your mother in the city? I think um, I was about 14, um, 14 to 15, something like that. Okay. So a lot of change in just a couple of years, you know, from your yeah. hometown to the city and then from Amps to you now your mother's new place in the city as well. So, and then like back to the earlier question, like the, the Cambodia was like you said, laissez-faire, very care, carefree. What else can you describe like the, uh, on the ground, what it was it like uh, to live in Cambodia at that time, you know, outside of like more of a peaceful coexistence, but like, you know, jobs, uh, opportunities, things like that. Well, um, a lot of, I noticed a lot of people are self-employed. Um, my, my, my grandfather was the carpenter. So he earned a living being a carpenter. He built things. And my parents, of course, they were, they were farmers until my mom got sick. And um, the people around me, most of them are self-employed. The, the, government workers and city workers they are in the in the big city so i'm only surrounded by the self-employed people no and that makes sense and that makes sense you know of course the cities are going to have more different type of workforce than the countryside large city small city so on and so forth so and this primarily would, would have been in the 1960s yeah mid 60s to late 60s Okay. Yeah. Cause I know at that period of time, the Vietnam war was still going on, you know, over in Vietnam. So there were some spillover effects on like along the border and a lot of other like political things that were going on as well. So you moved in with your mother and then you helped her and then you get into the late sixties, early seventies. So I imagine your education continued and other things as well. Yeah. 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 I, um, I continue to pursue my education and uh, and then when, when my mom got very sick like that, our whole family just cannot do any business. We cannot make a living. So um, I remember that we don't receive any government help at all. There is no 
nothing like welfare or or anything like in this country. Over there, you are so self um, self sufficient, and you depend totally on your own. So you can depend on the family, but I don't. I don't remember seeing my relative chip in to help out at all. So oh, that's that's unfortunate to hear. Yeah, so, yeah. So as you said, like no government aid, no like social, uh, no like welfare, social security, or things like that existed at that time. So you had to be very much independent, self sufficient, or the family unit had to look out for itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then that leads into like. And then, so you continue with education, and then, of course, then we get into the 70s, and that's when, unfortunately, as history has shown us, things started to change in the 70s. Yes. Yeah. So, if you don't mind me asking, like, when you get into this, when you got into the 70s, what was going on in Cambodia in the early 70s? I mean, the Vietnam War was still going on, there were other things in Cambodia, but from your experience, what did you see or observe, you know, in the early 70s? In the early 70s? First of all, my aunt's oldest daughter was disappeared. She was either kidnapped or something. She just disappeared. She was in her teen. She probably about 15. And we, the whole family was just traumatized by that disappearance. So, um, and then later on, the government changed from kingdom to live uh, to uh, dem- democracy so there's a big chain for for century our country had been a, a kingdom country and now it changed that's right because i know in the early 70s there was a coup the king was overthrown and uh, a new government came in so that i'm sure they had to create a lot of change and potential turmoil it's very much uh, a lot of turmoil yeah. I mean, just hearing that, I mean, like, I can't imagine what it would be like to live through a coup where every part of, you know, the, whole, the entire country is affected in one way, shape or form. Like, how did that, you know, how did that affect your fa- your family? You know, was it like, did it, did it filter down to the individual or was it, was, or were the result or were the effects kind of more varied? It varies, but our own family was so consumed with my mom's illness with uh, with our finance so we be, we 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 spend down all our saving and um there's no income coming in and it's just miserable so i remember that was a very very hard uh, hard time for us so my mom had to teach me how to to help out the family by making some cookies and go sell door to door and all that just to bring a little bit of income to support the family. So it was a very challenging time for our own family. So in other words, it was everything was just about survival for, for you and your family at that period yes. of time. Yeah, yes. But I can tell you this, being a caregiver for my mom is the best thing. Because my mom was always busy. We don't have, we never have time together, but now she cannot move. So I spend a lot of time with her, caring for her, and we share. Well, we build such a strong bond between us. 
I see what you mean. So in many cases, you know, even though what happened to her was very unfortunate, in another way, it gave you to the opportunity to bond and build up your relationship. So no, that that's very sweet. And I'm glad you had, you had that, but at the same time, I'm sorry you had to go through all that because that must've been very difficult for you and your entire family. Yes, it was. Yeah. And then of course, as we know, going into the mid seventies, that's when things really went wrong with when that government was overthrown by, you know, the Khmer Rouge guerrillas who came in and took power, I believe it was in the mid, around 1975. Yeah, yeah. Just after I graduated from high school, well, I graduated from high school in 1974, and I went to college, and um, College is in Phnom Penh. That's the big city mm-hmm. far, far away from home. It's more than 300 miles away from home. So um, thank goodness at that time, my mom recovered. Not fully, not 100%, but more like 80%. At least she can walk. So she can go out and make a living. And earn some income to send me to school because our family education is very important. So she will do anything to get the money to send me to school. No, that, that, that's great. And so you, you know, so you, you, you went to, you graduated and you went to college in 74 to 75 in Phnom Penh. That must've been different for you going from a provincial city to the capital mm-hmm. and and then literally less than a, about a year later, things really went south, as they say. Yes. yes. So what, what was college like for you in that first year when you were in Phnom Penh? College is, uh, I don't know, harder. <laughs> it's harder than high school. <laughs> <laughs> that is usually the case, yes. At least from my experience here in the U.S., college is certainly more demanding than high school. It's very challenging, especially they teach everything in French. Oh, wow. Okay. That's right, because Cambodia was a French colony for quite a long time. So that makes perfect sense. So, and then, so growing up, did you speak, um, did you, did did your family, was your family bilingual or just spoke um, French or or Cambodian? Uh, We spoke uh, Cambodian at home. But in school, they, um, as, as the grade go higher, it's more and more in French. So. I see. Well, that has to be a bit of a challenge, you know, being taught one language and then switching to a new language as you progress in grade. Yeah, yeah. This, the French is only useful in the school. Uh, it's not useful in, in the family. So that means you know, I cannot really communicate it. It, it, it just for schoolwork only. I, I see. So you were in college for about a year. It was difficult for you. And then what, how was life in Phnom Penh versus uh, your provincial city back in your home province? Well, um, it's, it's not too much different from the province from the province city. I don't have any car or any vehicle, so I did not go out and explore any city life. I'm pretty much confined in my apartment. <laughs> I just go out to a nearby market and buy whatever I need. So that's pretty much it. No, that makes sense. And you're focused on your studies, so your time was limited, I can imagine, and things like that. 
And then, you know, kind of getting more into the, I would say, more difficult, different aspects of things. In 75, when, or when the Khmer, when things fell apart and the Khmer Rouge took power, I, that must have been very, very, you know, terrifying for you and everyone in the country at that time. Very, very scary. We never expect anything like that. Um, we know that there are a lot of people kind of siding into the communism because their propaganda is very convincing that, oh, the communist uh, regime, it will, will treat everybody equally. So um, everything is better. It sounds good and everything. So the propaganda went into the school and the children and the, the students, some teachers kind of go with them. But when the day come, April 17, 1975, it's the day that they match in. So I looked through the window, the big tank came in and then the, the, uh, the teenage soldiers, they wear black uniform. They carry big gun on their shoulder, matching. And a lot of um, city people thought that, oh, it's going to be peace, going to be peace. So some of them, they wave their, their white flag and kind of, you know, welcome them <laughs> immediately the next day. The next day, things changed drastically. All the marketplace was shut down, total shutdown. There's, there's no more school. There's no more marketplace. There's no more government office. You cannot go anywhere to get any help. Even the bank, they closed the bank. They closed the post office. So I could not send any letter to my family. I, um, I cannot call home to find out how are they doing. I cannot go back home because the airport was closed and the bus line was closed. So it was heartbreaking. I, I it, yeah, yeah, I cannot imagine, you know, go, one day things are going to status quo. And the next day, everything shut down. This new group comes in, they're armed. They start changing everything. And if my history is correct, I believe they vacated everyone out of the Capitol not too long after they arrived. Yeah, the next day, they, they come door to door and point the gun at us to get out, get out right away. And uh, the, there is no way for us to argue or anything. The gun is pointing at us and we was evacuated on foot. We were walking. Nobody can bring the car. And even, even if you have a car, how far can you go if, if there's no gas station open and you, the money is not good anymore? Even if you have credit card, what can you do with the credit card? No, yeah, it's like literally the fabric of society just stopped. In and then, so basically, you're saying so they came in, they forced everyone out at gunpoint, and they marched everyone out on foot. So, I'm sure you know you could, you were in among this. So where where did they take you? They just push us to go away, go out of the city. So different direction all over the different direction. So we. I just follow a crowd. I went to be with my uncle. I had one uncle who lived in the suburb 
I went to be with him and he came, he, he, he moved all of us back into the city to find a hiding place. We were hiding before they took over the city, but immediately we had to move out of that hiding place. And with my uncle's family, we just walked walk in the heat very slowly because thousands and thousands of people are piling up on the street. We cannot move far because the street is extremely crowded. So we slept on the street. We eat a little bit of food that we carry from home and that's it. We don't have a bathroom to go. We don't have a place to take a shower. Uh, it's just the most miserable time I ever experienced. Uh, I, I can't imagine. And how long did this period last from when you were forced out of Phnom Penh? You, met, you went with your uncle, you went into hiding and then moved out again. Was this weeks or months? We were walking for weeks, weeks. And we finally got to the village that they let people stay in that village temporary. And right away, they... They take people to go to work. They they push us to go to work in the rice field. But um, for me, there there was an announcement. They said that if anybody want to move to Badambong, please register. So when I heard the word Badambong, that's my home hometown. I want to go to Badambong, so I signed up and. Um, a few days later, they, they bring all those people who sign up, put on a truck, and then on the boat, and then on the train, a few, a few transition. And finally, they brought us into the wilderness. This, it's not the city. It's in more like a, a very small city, a small village, far away from any city. So... I was so disappointed. I thought that I'm going home to Badambong, but no, it was a lie. So basically they said they're going to take you back to your hometown in your home province. And they took you back to your home province, but not, not the city. So basically you were basically that you and all these other people were basically put in this like village in, in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And so basically it turned into like a camp, you could say, or like a, yeah, it, it, it's a place that they they don't have enough people, so they just want the people to go there. Um, and I was so disappointed. And then later, uh, I uh, registered to go to another camp because they said, well, they need a single man and woman to get trained so that you can be a mobile worker to go help out the village nearby. When I heard that opportunity, I say, oh, that I might have an opportunity to go find my family. That's all I thought about. I just want any opportunity to go find my family. So I, I registered, I signed up. But this time, big mistake, big mistake. I end up in a big forced labor camp. 1,000 people get trapped into that camp and they they have gun and they watch us 24-7. They force us to work extremely in a harsh condition in the, in the heat, like 15, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And they give us very little food to eat. Like how, how like, like in terms of small, like how, like rice, you know, vegetables or 
rice and the watery soup. They make soup in the big, big tank. And that soup is just water and a little bit of greenery. You you can hardly find any piece of, uh, of fish. They put fish in it, but because the, 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 the tank is so big, you hardly find any fish. I, God, I can't imagine that. So basically, you were moved to this forced labor camp. You were given very, very small amounts of food per day, and you were you and everyone else were worked literally 15, 16 hours a day, and it was just day after day. Day after oh, day. Man. Yeah, and uh, we were exhausted. I was exhausted. Uh, I did not get enough sleep, like maybe three, four hours a night, and become very tired, very exhausted every day so eventually it will not take us long eventually many of us get sick so i contracted several diseases like malaria typhoid and then and then i initiated i became like skin and bone and um i still need to go to work at one point i become too sick to work to go to work and they put the sick people like me in a separate place so when i got to that place i realized this is a death camp a camp for me to wait to die a lot of people die there every day and i realized that i need to do something to get out from there so i don't know what to do because if i go back to the working camp i cannot work if I stay here, I will die. So um, I start to think about what to do. And I remember, remember a long time ago when I was like seven or eight years old, I remember my mom's reading the story at nighttime. In that story, um, it's uh, it's appear that there is God in that story. And and God know what's going on on earth and he had compassion over the children and the women. So since my young age, I already determined that there is God. So I already believe that there is God. So now that my life is about to end, but I don't want to end. So I pray to that God. <laughs> I pray. I wait until nighttime because they don't believe in any religion so if they see us pray or practice any religion we will be in danger so i start to pray and pray every night because that's the only hope nothing else i can do so and and one day god seemed to answer my prayer he gave me a little bit of energy to walk out from there so when i walk out i walk to the direction of the walk, a working camp. When I got there, there was one one young team leader. She she's very kind. She know me before, so we know each other. When she saw me come in, she's very compassionate, and she took me in her group. And she said, "You stay with me. I'll find something for you to do." And then. Not long after she realized that I'm too sick to do anything. So so um, she went to find something for me. So she told me, she said, you cannot work with me. You need to go to work in the kitchen. I know that God heard my prayer because only God knows where I need to be in my situation. That's where I need 
to be to restore my health. So when I got there, I got to work in the kitchen. I have access to food. I work in the shade instead of in the sun. I work less hours. So gradually, I felt better, felt better, and I gained more energy. And I realized that I survived. Yeah, that's well. I, I can't imagine going through that. Literally, work, being worked that hard and thinking, yeah, "I'm not going to survive this," and then having that literally miraculous event happen where you got a chance to have a, you know, to continue on and to build your body back up to get, you know, with nourishment and other things. I mean, I just can't imagine that's, I mean, no one should have to go through that. And it's so sad that you had to go through that, but you know, the important thing is that you got through it. So after you worked in the kitchen for a while and how long would you say you were in this camp, either in, in the, in the work team, in the, kind of the death part of the camp, as you mentioned, and then and working in the kitchen. How long of a period of time was this? Four years. Four years. Four horrible years. I um, I got to work in the kitchen only for about several months, maybe five months, six months. And then I, when I they saw me look better, feel better, they pulled me out from the kitchen and throw me to work in the rice field. So I endure the whole time for four years. So literally from 1975 until 1979? Yeah. And then in 1979, that's when the Cameroos was overthrown. Yes. Uh, for the whole country, the rest of the country, everybody was liberated. <laughs> But there was some killing during those times. The, the Camaros still want to control us. They, they take us as their cushion. So if the Vietnamese uh, uh, blow the gun, we are their cushion. Basically, they use these human shields because that's yes. right. The Vietnamese, Vietnamese army invaded Cambodia to kick the Camaros out. So there was a lot of fighting going on. And then literally... As you said, they used their own people that, you know, you, you and other people as human shields or collateral to, yeah, that's just, that's sick. Yeah, yeah. So they, um, they also, my, my camp, they found this, they found out about the, the Vietnamese troops and so on. So they know, they start to move us into the jungle. So I did not get liberated by the by the Vietnamese. I was moved with them to the jungle. So at one point I realized that we are moving closer and closer or farther and farther into the jungle. And this is now the direction that I will find my family. This is against my direction. So at that time, I start to to look for my way out. That's when when God gave me the courage that I need to start planning my escape. I did plan my escape. It's very dangerous. There's thousands and thousands of people get killed that time because when you get out from them, they they they, they know that you are betraying them. So they kill you right away. But I'd rather be killed than going to live in the jungle without my family. So I gathered three close friends and asked them to, you know, if they want to get their freedom, go with me. Come with me. Let's do it. So we did. And we made it out. That must have been extremely scary, horrifying, 
you know, I'm sure you were just nervous, you know, because, you, you know, you're thinking, am I going to make it out? You know, are they going to kill me? Are they, am I going to find my way out? But like you said, miraculously, the four of you did. Yeah, miraculously. That's, I think God's in the wind. God probably show us the direction because we have no idea. It's in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of the night. It's, it's dark, black. There's no light. We cannot see where to go. But miraculously, we made it. Well, in, I'm just, you know, all I can say is I'm glad you guys made it out and you know, you can pass on this story to people who, you know, don't know about this and who've not gone through something as horrible as this, because let's face it, if unless you live through something like this or you know someone, you're not, it, it's not going to be felt as hard or you're not going to have any kind of connection or under, you know, or I should say not understanding you can, or actual, like, there's no way you can really understand it unless you've been through it. And then that, but no, that's just, you know, it's crazy in my opinion here from hearing that so you managed to get out you made it up through the jungle past the past the the cameroons the, the the militants you know their their armed soldiers etc and then from there how, what did you what because you were with these three other friends what did the four of you do after this once you had gotten out once we got out when we walked a little bit farther we see we saw some villagers and we asked around I asked for direction to go to my hometown. So that's how, you know, people pointed us and, you know, where to go. So we walk. It's a long walk, a long walk. It's, I, I believe it's more than a month. Uh, it's more than a month of walk barefoot, but I tracked down my family. It's all worth it. And, and, and given just the pandemonium in four years of just society and the fabric of society being turned on its head it's amazing you were able to find your family yeah yeah my family was liberated uh, a few months before me before i arrived because the whole country they already you know was liberated but i was now i was now i had to escape to get out so they thought that I was dead. <laughs> they gave away my clothes and everything, but <laughs> but uh, finally we were reunited. Well, I mean, I, I, that must have been probably one of the best days in your family's life when they saw you still alive coming back. Because, like, like, like you said, they had literally thought, you know, there's no way they could she, that she could still be alive after this. But that must have been a, a, a wonderful day for all of you. Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, and. And that, and that's great. That's great that you had that and you guys can have that reconciliation. And, you know, and you mentioned that, you know, eventually you made it to the United States. So after we, you know, you know, getting back with your family and reuniting, what, um, what was the process where it eventually led you to the U S because so you were, you know, it start, you were 75, you went through all that. And then 79, was it 79 or 80 when you managed to get out? Um, I stayed with my family for several months, and then in 1980, things did not get much better. The situation is still, still scary. It's still questionable. So my mom pushed me out. Although we want to be together, but for our future, she had this plan. She said that you need to go out because I have a cousin who 
live in United States, so you need to go and find him. <laughs> That's basically it. So uh, one of her cousin also planned to go to the border. So that's why she matched me up with him to go together. So uh, at least I have another person to go with. So we, we escaped through the Thai border. We went to the Thai border and um, it's a dangerous escape, but, it's, uh, but we made it out also. Um, doing uh, along the border, there are a lot of uh, landmine, a lot of landmine that they put it uh, to protect the border and all that. So, so a lot of people that try to escape uh, several months earlier, a lot of them lost their life because of the landmine. That's what I've heard. Is even today in Cambodia, people still are either ki- either injured or killed by landmines almost, you know, every day in many cases, because there are a lot of places where people, you know, you'll see people with no, no legs or no arms. So that's, they said, that's just tragic. I mean, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, and who knows how many more years in the future, people will still be losing their lives or losing limbs because of that. Yeah. Yeah. So you managed to escape um, to the Thai border. And then what happened once you got into Thailand? When, when I crossed over to the other side, uh, we got into the, the camp. The camp was uh, organized by United Nations High Commissioner. So it's the refugee camp to receive people that escaped just like me. So we found us a place to, to stay and receive some, some food. And then I um, searched for my relatives in the United States and we made connection and he sponsored me to come. No, that's great. That's great. So, so you, you managed to get into Thailand in 1980, you said, and then how long were you in Thailand before your cousin in the U.S. was able to sponsor you? It's only a few months he started the process, but it's a lot of waiting time. So there was more than a year before I came to United States. So, so you were in Thailand a good year, year and two or three months. So, yeah. just over a year. More than a year. I got you. Now that that's you know that just you know literally between seventy five and eighty one, you know, six years of your life, you went through so much. I mean, more than most people will go through in many lifetimes, I would say. Yeah. And then so that and then. When you finally left to the U.S., you know, that that must have been a very interesting, you know, like uh, experience for you when you've left Thailand and arrived in the U.S. Because, you know, night and day difference in terms of just, you know, so many things. So kind of going to the next next part of this episode. What So moving into your life in the U.S. So to, what, to begin with, what was it like when you first got to the U.S.? What, what was what what was that like for you? It was totally different, and I was not in a good shape. I had a lot of motion sickness. So during the flight, the, it's a long flight. <laughs> it's it sound like two days because it, it just so so many steps, so many layover, and all that. So by the time I got to New York airport, I was wiped out, totally exhausted. But um, 
<laughs> but my relative here, he um, he asked the church that he belonged to. He he had to move out of this of the state to get another job. So by the time I arrived, he already moved out. So I fell into a hand of the um, the church members. So the church, they organized a wonderful uh, refugee resettlement program. So I was very fortunate and I'm grateful. So they have been very helpful to me and I just cannot describe it. If, if I had to maneuver all the, the, the new life without any help, I would be in a, in a loss big loss. But no, and it I sounds like they really facilitated a lot for you and helped you get on your feet because like you said, your cousin had to move out of state, you know, for work. But, you know, I, I and I can't imagine just kind of the, the pace of life and the settings, the difference, you know, the adjustment you had to go through because, you know, I'm sure when you when you first arrived, just people, the surroundings, buildings, you know, just it was completely different from what you were used to. Yeah, yeah, totally different. The food, even the food <laughs> is different. <laughs> I I didn't I was craving for my rice. <laughs> <laughs> Where is the rice? No, I didn't scream for rice, but <laughs> regardless, I'm sure it was quite an, quite an adjustment, but you know, the, right. but you got through it. But what would you say was the like the biggest like the biggest like thing you had to adapt to like you know in the first you know weeks and months you were here what 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 did you find hardest to adapt to or to you know change to kind of you know suit the new surroundings you were in oh it it has to be the language i don't understand what they are saying <laughs> Well, yeah, I bet because you know, growing up, you know, speaking Cambodian and then learning French, and then now you throw English into the mix. Yes, yes, it's a good thing that I stay in the refugee camp for a while, and I had, I was able to attend some of the English class that were taught by other refugees. <laughs> so I learned a little bit along along that line. So I know a few words but not enough to understand, to, to do, to make a conversation that makes sense. So it's very challenging. Well, hearing to you now, your English is pretty good. So I, you've made a lot of progress. And I think that, <laughs> 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 no, so, so you flew into New York, um, your, your cousin's church helped you with resettlement and getting on your feet. And so you were in New York for how long? Um, not not quite in New York. Uh, the airplane lay, uh, landed in New York, but uh, I I was sent to Connecticut. Okay, so okay, so you landed and then, but then you basically settled. The first place you settled down for a time was in Connecticut. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we uh, I stay in Connecticut for eight years. Um, that's where I I learned the language. I had to uh, study to get my GED because I still want to pursue higher education. So <laughs> uh, with, um, in less than two years, 
I was able to register for college. That's great. That's great. That's amazing. Literally, you arrive in the U.S., you get your GED, you learn the you learn enough language, and then two and then within two years you get to go to college. That's that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I found myself a, a good a full time job, and my employer was really good to me. They have uh, my my supervisor like me a lot. So she discovered that they have an education assistant program. So as long as I maintain a good grade, <laughs> I, I, get, uh, I get support from the company. So that's, that's great. Literally company support for higher education. That's a dream. A lot of people always look forward to go back to school. So that's great. And having a supervisor or a boss, that's good. And understanding that's, that's worth its weight in gold, in my opinion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you also mentioned that you also helped your family get over to the U.S. as well. Yes. Yeah. A few years after I arrived in the United States, my mom and my all my brothers also escaped because my mom got robbed. <laughs> got robbed. So, so she was just too bitter about the people that robbed her. She's not that well. She's she's skinny and sick and all that. So so she just had enough. She said, if if I die during my escape, so be it. I'm not going to stay. I'm gonna so, try. You know, like I, I don't care. I'm gonna try. Yes, yes. So she um, she gathered all her children and her uh, one daughter-in-law and two grandchildren cross over to Thailand. But one sad thing is that by the time they arrive in the camp, all those camps were closed. The camp was still there, but there's nothing going on. They don't register any new people. So my family became illegal residents. So they are not registered. So. I was trying to do the paperwork, try to sponsor them, but I was wait, I was waiting and waiting and waiting. Nothing going on, nothing moving, and and later on, um, I do a lot of uh, petition. I wrote letter. I wrote the congressman. Wrote to the senator for help and everything. Everybody tried to help. What happened? So, and then. In uh, 1987, I think, we, uh, I got to go to Thailand with a delegation, a delegation trip with the senator's aide. The senator sent her, his aide to go with us to Thailand to go to the immigration office to find out what happened and to see if they can, uh, can help um, you know, facilitated. So we found out <laughs> that they are not registered. Their name doesn't appear anywhere. So there's no record of them arriving into nothing. So they had, so they had absolutely nothing to work with to try nothing to figure to out when they came, where they were, etc. Yeah, yeah. So that was shocking. And in in the meantime, they were in hiding. They are in danger. The, um, the soldier, the, the Thai soldier, come out and look in the camps and look for the illegal resident and they can take them to jail. They can put them in jail and punish them. So 
I was I worried so much that I became, I have a nightmare every night. But my art delegation trip gave us an idea that I need to become a U.S. citizen in order for me to bring my family over. So that's what yeah. I did. Yeah, wait until the time come because there is a time that before that time I cannot apply to become a U.S. citizen. So uh, the time come and I become a U.S. citizen and, uh, and then we go from there. And shortly after that, my family came. No, that's great. And so you became a citizen, you finally got everything done to get them over. So I imagine they came to stay with you in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then that leads into more of your later life here in the U.S. now or you're in Connecticut. So you got to the U.S. in 80, uh, 80, 81, 81. 81. Yeah. And then your family arrived in 80, 88, 88. So seven years, so seven years between when you arrived and they arrived in 87. So, and then as you, and as you've mentioned, you, you went to school and then you started doing a lot more um, work outside of, outside of work. Like, you know, you started, you were a book and speaking and all these other things. So maybe you can give a little bit of like how you got into those things that you've been, that you've been, you know, we can see a lot of the works you've done now and more recently. Yes, yes, that's a long way from from there. That beginning was in Connecticut, and I graduated from West Con and all that, and then I got married. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, so you, uh, what, what, when did you graduate? First of all, when did you graduate? Um, I graduated at the end of seven, uh, 87, beginning 88, so I consider the class of 88. So, yeah. Okay, so you graduated in 88, and then later on you said you got married. That's, that's great. That was, must have been really happy for you at the time. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a good year, 88, 89, I got married. <laughs> and then my husband uh, lived in Texas, so I had to move out from Connecticut, so left my family again. But, but at least they are in the United States. I don't need to worry anymore. Yeah, it's, you're apart, but it's not like anything or any of the situations you were in before. So you could say kind of a piece of cake compared to what happened before. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so my husband, since he married me, he started he start to move to a different company. So uh, I continue to move with him. And I become a trailing wife. You know what that means. <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, he goes someplace. You go, you go with them. So a lot of a lot of moving and uprooting. <laughs> yeah, moving, and I stay behind, take care of the house, selling the house, and all that, um, all that kind of business. And he move ahead to take the new job and all that. So we moved like four times in our, in our marriage before he uh, retired. So, so, um, so my career, I did not have a good career because of so much moving going on. 
<laughs> but I'm, I'm not complaining. Uh, at one point, I became a full-time caregiver to my mom again because her health is failing and I'm, I'm the only daughter. So I took care of her and leave all my brothers free of, of care. When, and I took, took care of my mom for 13 years. Oh, wow. 13 years. But I'm glad that I fulfilled my duty as the daughter and she passed on nine years ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. I know, you know, it, it's sad to hear that, but at least you were able to get her out, you know, and, and you're able to spend the last part of her life, you know, together. And, you know, and unlike so many other people, you know, fellow, your fellow Cambodians who did not have any happy endings or never did make it out from that period, you and your family at least did. And that, you know, and regardless of, like you said, what jobs you've had as a family, you all survived, you know, and carried on. And that's in many ways, miraculous given the circumstances. Yes, yes. So uh, to answer your question about my book and uh, about my current uh, project, uh, six years ago, I published my book uh, based on the encouragement of my friends because I, some of my friends get to know me deeper in my story and everything. And they encouraged me to write. They said, your story need to be heard. It will help a lot of people. So finally, in 2015, I published my book. And um, that year, that book went the most inspirational uh, story uh, by Richter Publishing Company in Tampa. So, um, yeah, and that and that that you bring up a, a good point there. A lot of people who have written books, it may not be, it may be because they want to, but in many cases, it's people around them who really push them because they they can sense this is at least in their opinion they think this is important. This needs to be told, and I'm glad that they you know they pushed to do that because what you went through, everyone should know about experiences like that, so we never have net we never repeat them again. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So since I published my book, I want my message to spread out further because some people that did not buy the book, they don't know. So mm -hmm. I, want, I want to go out and speak. So that's why I become a speaker as well. No, I think that that is very important. I think that allows you to reach a lot of people. I and mean, your book will definitely has definitely reached a lot of people, but I think being a motivational speaker and telling your story, I think that's, you know, that's very, I, I, it's very, I think, you know, very, you know, pointing to you to do that. But I, at the same time, it has to be difficult at times because a lot of things you discussed, you know, are not positive things and they have to bring back a lot of, you know, you know, flashbacks and memories that are not, you know, very unsavory for you. Right. Right. Yeah. But um, for the sake of the audience, I do it because it helped them. Um, in fact, one of my audience members told me a few months later, she told me, she said that I saved her life. And I was so shocked. I said, how? And 
I didn't, I don't remember you. And she said, Sarah, I, I was in your audience when you spoke and I have been suicidal all my life. Oh. She said, since I heard your story and I read your book, I no longer suicidal. I hold on to this full-time job. I have my own place to live. So it was every effort that I did when I heard that. Very much, you know, in in one way that vindicates, you know, like I've had a positive effect on this person and, you know, gives, I'm sure that gave you a lot of motivation to like continue doing that. Yes, yes. When, when you know that you save somebody's life, um, it's, it's very, uh, very humbling. Oh, no, I, I can't imagine because, you know, it's you've helped someone continue and maintain their life and not end it because every life, as I say, is a gift. And, you know, there's no reason you should end it because regardless of how bad things get, it's like there's always something to live for. At least that's what I believe. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so you published your book in 2015, you've done motivational speaking, you're a member of several organizations, your church work, you know, and so a lot of this stuff, you know, has been more in the last like 20 years, you could say, you know, it's since, you know, after you graduated, you were married, moved around. So a lot of this, you know, so of these things, what would you say is like, which of these things is the most important to you? Or does it, or, or, or would you consider all of them equally important? Hmm. The book and my speaking, it's right now, right now is very important. Uh, I feel like it's my duty because God saved my life. So he must have a duty, a job for me to do. So I, I feel like it's my responsibility to do something to help other people. No, and I especially after surviving all that, I can see how that would facilitate a lot of feeling of wanting to give back or to share or, you know, all those people who, you know, you know, you knew and all the suffering and death that you saw, you you don't want that to be in vain for any reason. Yes. No, you know, well, Sarah, I really, really appreciate it. And, you know, I just encourage you to keep up your efforts, you know, keep doing what you're doing and spreading awareness, you know, so that kind of leads into our, into our conclusion. So, you know, what would you say is based off your life experience and everything, like what, what do you want to leave with people? I mean, we've kind of already answered this, but in your own words, what would you say or what would you like advise people, recommend to people, you know, having been through what you've been through, you know, what do you, what, what do you want to offer to people? You know, he said, you help that one woman who was suicidal get past that. But how do you think your life you know, in your, in the events in your life can help people or, you know, influence people. I know there's a lot, a lot put together, but just, uh, you know. Yes. yes. I, um, I, I hear you. Um, I was said, no matter how bad things are, never give up hope. And also always have faith. When you have faith, your outlook is more positive. You believe, you believe that the, the higher being, God, have a plan for us. So you have a better perspective in life that things can be better. When, when I was in the midst of 
the darkness, I never thought that that my life would be over. I think things will, will be better. Things will get better. I will find my family. So um, hope, faith, and also love. I remember I told you that I had the time to bond with my mom. Yes, I remember that. that. Both that in love, life and then, and then more recently. That love bond that carry me through that dark time. When you have a strong bond, you don't want to give up your life. You don't want to end because that, that love will give us hope, will give us encouragement. So um, I could have given up. There's a lot of people in my camp gave up, but I did not give up. Uh, I remember, I thought about my family. I said, they can use my help. I wish I was there. I wish I can help out. So our life is not just for ourselves. Our life is for other people, especially for our family. Well, I think that goes back to the point that, you know, family is the most important thing. You know, it's, and in your case, that's one of the one of the key factors that kept you going and and that continue to keep you going is love and a desire to help your family yeah you know i think and there's i think that's there's nothing more pure than that in so many in so many in so many ways but yeah and just when you see people give up or you know think oh things can't be worse you know it's like they should take a you know pause for a second and think about what you've gone through and i'm sure that whatever they're dealing with now at least in most cases that will will be you know just pale in comparison to what has happened and they'll realize that wow what i'm dealing with is not that bad after all it can it it could always be worse yes we heard some story that a very ill person that their life is is getting so close to the end, but because of their loved one, the, the, the person, the special person that they love so much, because of that person can, can, can draw that person to, to uh, get out of the near-death experience. No, no, I completely agree with you. And I just think that you know, people, everyone can learn from each other. We can always gain new ways of how to live life and make the most of life. Because I think going through what you've been through, it just makes you appreciate how precious life life is yours and others and that you need to maximize every minute of it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Sarah, it's been an honor to have you on today. I'm really happy that you shared your story and, you know, I knew that you would, I'd be hearing a lot today about your experiences, but I mean, just, I'm all I can say is, wow, you've, you've been through a lot and, I'm just very happy that you made it, you got through all of that, regardless, you know, despite how horrible it must have been and the you know, mental and physical and psychological stress you went through. But at the end, look what you've been able to accomplish. You've come to the U.S., you, you're married, you're, you got your family here, you got a degree, you've educated yourself, and now you're giving back by sharing your story, helping others and doing these other, other initiatives. So I can't think of a more, in a way, fulfilling life up till now than that. Thank you, Sean. No, you're, you're, you're quite welcome. And, you know, I'd love to have you back on for another episode. And I just say your story is definitely one uh, for inspiration. And, you know, I've gained a lot of 
of, uh, <clears throat> you know, motivation and inspiration to continue this podcast and share stories like yours, because at the end of the day, regardless of where we are, where we live and what we're doing, we're all human. We all have stories that, and we need to learn about each other to help each other. Yes, definitely. So what you are doing is very important is to share the inspiration to other people. So I appreciate you. Well, again, Sarah, I really appreciate it as well. And like you said, that just encouraged me to further this podcast and to, you know, spread awareness and, you know, inter, inter, interweave the world with all the different people, places, and cultures that, that make up this planet of ours. So Sarah, again, it's been a pleasure. We hope to have you back on another episode. And this has been another episode of International Immersion. We will see you on the next one. Feel free to check us out on Facebook, our page, International Immersion, or our Instagram page of the same name, or shoot us an email at internationalimmersionpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also check out Sarah. She has, you can check out her book and other information I will leave in this episode's description. And with that, this is International Immersion, and we will see you on the next one.